3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
4: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Uh, today, as you could probably tell from the title of this episode, we have, uh, well, what is an unusual topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about penile transplants. And we just wanted to say up front before we, you know, dive into this episode that every time we've posted something about this subject, because there's been a lot of news about it lately, whether it's been to social media or we talked about it on, uh, like, our live streams or something like that, it often kind of descends into these sort of, like, adolescent jokes. Uh, and, you know, we want to have a sense of humor about this, but at the same time, like, doing this research, it really became apparent to us, like how traumatizing this is for a lot of people, and how important this procedure is. There's some weird science to it, certainly, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a lot of people's lives that are affected by this. Yeah, I mean,
1: we're talking about the the loss of genitalia, the loss of a sex organ here, and that's that's a serious matter. And I think our our sort of conditioning is certainly in uh, in American culture and, and Western culture in general. Uh, our, our conditioning to want to laugh, to want to make a joke about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess a lot of that is coming from an area of just, you know, you're uncomfortable. What can you do? What kind of, what's my response? I can make right, a joke laugh. and then I can fill
4: that space. Yeah. To get um, rid of your anxiety or something.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's understandable. I, you know, for the most part, I feel like everything is uh, on the table when it comes to humor, but in 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 researching this in talking with our special guest today it it really became apparent that this unwillingness to seriously engage with with this issue has actually held back some of the advances that can that that could help people who need it
4: yeah absolutely uh so that's a perfect segue into that uh, we were very lucky to be able to talk with Mary Roach for about half an hour about her upcoming book, Grunt. In particular, there are two chapters in that book that are about penile transplant surgery for soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very real issue for uh, American soldiers coming back from overseas, uh, in particular, who have been damaged by IED explosions. Uh, and... The military's uh, wing of doctors are trying to figure out what to do with that. And Mary consulted with a lot of those. But then there's also like a, a good like 10 year history now of the science of penile transplants uh, for everything from these wounded soldiers to uh, cancer victims. And then also, uh, as we'll talk about in South Africa, there is ritualistic circumcision that leads to penises essentially falling off.
1: Right, and and, and in situations where it's not full on penile transplant, I mean, we're still you're still dealing with with Eurotrauma. You're dealing with yeah. re, with plastic surgery to correct injuries to the genitals, uh, and that is uh, a and, and, and some of that science actually is what, as we end up discussing uh, ends up um, uh, stemming from uh, gender reassignment surgeries and advancements that have been made in that area.
4: Yeah, and so uh, a little bit of clarification too about like uh, the conversation and then the like sort of turn of events since right. we recorded the conversation. Uh, Mary's book was uh, is uh, coming out soon. It should be out this week, uh, Grunt: the Curious Science of Humans at War. Uh, and we actually interviewed Mary a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. in preparation for this. And since then, on May 16th, the first US uh, penile transplant was achieved. Uh, and it was announced in the New York Times, I believe. Yes. Uh, and actually here at How Stuff Works, our colleague Lauren Vogelbaum wrote an article and recorded a video about that. Mm-hmm. By the time you're hearing this episode, that may be like two or three week old news. Uh, but when we recorded the interview with Mary, it actually hadn't been announced yet. Right. So we were uh, focusing primarily on the research and uh, transplants that have been done in China and South Africa, as well as what Mary had experienced in her research with uh, military medicine. Right. And some of the the
1: pending um, advancements there, like some of the procedures they're working up to. Yep. So yeah, just keep that timeline in mind as you listen to the interview, and uh, you know, nothing's actually broken in the interview. Just
4: keep yeah. in mind when it was. Required. So we're going to play the interview now uh, and let you hear our conversation with Mary uh, about this fascinating topic. And then when we come back after that, Robert and I are going to go over the brief history and the science of what's going on here with penile transplants.
1: Well, first of all, uh, thanks for taking the time out of your day to chat with us here. Um, we've we've really been enjoying uh, reading Grunt, and uh, and in the past, I've been a big fan of. I think I've I've read all of your previous books: uh, Stiff, Spook, Bonk, Gulp, Packing for Mars. Uh, so, anytime a, a Mary Roach book comes out, we get excited.
3: <laughs> there should be some kind of special—I don't know—bracelet or, or medal or something that you get if you've read all of them. Very few people have read all of them. Thank you.
1: <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> With this particular book, uh, I guess uh, the place I want to start is, um, I, I was particularly interested in the two chapters concerning urotrauma, genital reconstruction surgery, and genital transplants. Uh, because I mean, there's the I mean, there's the morbidity and the squin the squeamishness of the topic, but it ultimately provides some some you provide some powerful insights into the place where science and, and to a certain extent the war machine itself has to try and stitch everything back together again, both physically and psychologically. Was this a challenging subject matter to undertake?
3: It was, yeah, for just the reasons that n- you've just mentioned. It's it's uh, it's a sensitive topic. And I'm not known as a sensitive writer. <laughs> um, if you're familiar with my book, um, but it's um, it, yeah, I think that beca- because it is sensitive, people shy away from it. And um, I feel like it's important to talk about it, and so do the people who do the work, uh, because somebody's uh, sexual health and and sex life and relationships are are in the balance, and that's you know that's important stuff. It's it, you know I mean it's important to get veterans, uh, wounded warriors, whatever you want to call them, you know, mobile and walking and able to take care of day to day activities and be back on their feet. But sex is important too and um a substantial number of these men sustain injuries that do uh that do go up that high. I mean it's a it's a it's a fraction of them, but still enough that it's it's important to talk about it.
4: Hey, Mary, this is Christian Sager, the co-host of the show. To piggyback off of what Robert was just saying, I'm particularly interested here in the cultural and identity connections that you remarked on regarding penis reconstruction. And I'd like to know, you know, from the research and from the people you talk to, how much of the repair part is actually psychological. In particular, I'm thinking of the example you gave of men who are worried about having to sit down to urinate.
3: Yeah, that's there is a cultural um you know that, that what you're talking about is a urethrostomy, I believe I'm saying it right. Um wherein if uh it's it's one option if rebuilding the urethra uh, isn't possible or doesn't work, you can take what remains of the urethra and make an opening in the perineum. Okay. Perineum. <laughs> However you pronounce it. Uh and then um y- the the person would sit down to urinate, you know, as a, as a woman does. And, um, I asked when I was in the, the operating room, I asked, uh, both the surgeons there, like how, how much of a big deal is this? And one of them said, well, you know, when you're talking about, you've lost one part of one leg and, you know, part of one hand and you know this is not a big deal. The other surgeon looked at me and said, it's huge yeah uh, so there's a difference of opinion there but um yeah obviously it's i think it's it, and, and then she went on to say that uh she'd been at a urological conference uh, in, in europe it was a, a world urology conference and it, it, it was very cultural they were she said the italian surgeons were like are you kidding me no mm. <laughs> you know that that seemed to be you know an affront to masculinity other cultures were, you know, it was less of, seemed like less of a big deal. So, um, you know, as a woman, it's hard for me. That's an interesting thing. You know, there are sometimes you know, every now and then I've met men who are like, yeah, I sit down the toilet because, you know, it keeps the carpet cleaner. You know, or my wife <laughs> likes me too. And,
0: <laughs> right.
3: and and then there's other men who are like, you sit down on the toilet to pee. So I think it's both cultural and personal. Yeah. But it's, a, it's an interesting topic.
4: So they're incorporating of, um, therapy I, yeah. into this then as well, I would assume?
3: Um, therapy is, this is an area, um, sex, sexual health and intimacy counseling is a, is an area that uh, I think the government would do well to dedicate more funding to. At, at the time I was at Walter Reed, there was not a full-time staff person doing just that. But, wow. You know, There's a sense that, um, that, that, you know, we only have so much money to go around and this, you know, sex is, is, it's lifestyle. This is just lifestyle. You know, that this is not going to be a priority for our taxpayer dollars. And and there are people at Walter Root who who work with these patients who feel like this is really important. Like, yeah, it's important that they walk, but it's also important that they be able to have a, sexual relationship that isn't fraught and that, you know, and that, and that one, you know, once you come out of these operations and you, you know, there's just a, a lot of things to adjust to and, and, you know, how do you use this thing now that it's been reconstructed or, you know, whatever's been done. I mean, and it's not just with reconstruction and transplants. It's also, um there's a lot of uh, heavy medication that goes on, especially in the, Early months after an injury, there's nerve stabilizers and antidepressants and pain meds, all of which can affect um, a man's ability to get an erection or to keep an erection. And that's, you know, that that also should be part of the counseling. And there are people there who do it, but there um, there need to be more of them.
4: Yeah. So uh, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here because that you connected right to another thing I wanted to ask about, which is. This idea that that sex isn't as valued financially as walking, for instance, and so I, I'm curious from your experience researching this book, do you think the fear of just sex talk in general is preventing us from making strides in health sciences?
3: Yeah, well, there, yes, I think that part of part of it. I mean, the, the woman that I um, that I spoke to, Christine Delorier, who runs the Walter Reed, it's a sexual health. An intimacy working group, and it's something she does on her own time. Uh, There's about 50 people who get together and share resources and who've been working in this area, and that was what she said to me. She said, this isn't just a budget issue. This is the government not wanting to embrace sex, And, and, and not just out of prudishness. I think just as it's out of a sense of, you know, we... We must spend taxpayer dollars in you know the the way that taxpayers want us to and and, mm-hmm. and sex is perceived as certain you know certainly in you know, in, in you know certain segments of the population uh, you know that's that's not perceived as a worthy expense you know that that is uh um, yeah it's a it's it's considered you know lower priority okay and and yeah i think it it is it it is in some way tied in with. Kind of a, yeah, not a prudishness, but uh, you know, to be spending taxpayer dollars promoting sexual pleasure, you know, it's 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 treacherous grounds, you know, uh, in terms of getting negative media attention or what have you. But it's also, you know, I should also say the number of, I mean, if you look at the number of veterans whose injuries have left them in need of surgery or infertile or, or what have you, it's a small percentage because most, I mean, most of the injury is in the lower part of the body. It's the foot and the calf and, you know, b- below the knee. Higher up you go, the, the less frequent these injuries are. So it's something like 300 genital, urinal, gen, urogenital, however you want to um, term it, injuries for something like 150,000 amputations or, sorry, 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 no, I think it was, it's 300 urological patients for every 18,000 limb amputees. so it's okay. it's it's a it's a lower priority in that sense. And you know that's when you're looking at a budget and where to spend the money, that's also part of it. So it's not just squeamishness regarding sex, but I I do I do think that probably plays a factor. Yes.
1: Uh, but as you uh, you point the point out in the book, and this I, I thought was a really important fact was just we, our our medical technology uh, has has reached the point where more. Uh, soldiers are surviving the sort of injuries that would, in, in previous uh, um, decades, would have just killed them outright. But now they're surviving with more yes. grievous, uh, grievous injuries. Correct?
3: Yeah, that's right. It, yeah, exactly. The the uh, IEDs have gotten larger, so the injuries are going higher up the limb, and to the extent where they're affecting the genitals, and that used to be a fatal. And you know that size of an explosion. It used to be a fatal injury for the most part that, you know, if you, if you're hitting the level of someone's hips, you're also going to be damaging organs. And, uh, so, so that's a, that's a very serious injury. And yes, these patients are now surviving more than they used to. So not only are the injuries, the, the explosions are getting bigger, but also the ability to keep these folks alive hmm. has advanced a lot. So yeah, there's, there's, there are more people surviving to need this kind of surgery and counseling.
4: So, Mary, I'm curious, in the conversations you had with medical professionals about this, how much did they acknowledge the contributions of phalloplasty from the transgender community as contributing to their work?
3: Um, it, 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 that was the very first conversation I had with someone at, um, it was a meeting I had at USIS, the uniform, um, uniform Services University of Health Sciences, and that first person that I spoke to, uh, that's what he said, some of the, you know, that these are techniques that are uh, stemming from work, from transgender work. I mean, I, that it makes perfect sense. I mean, that is mm-hmm. what has pushed the advances in rebuilding, building a penis from various other pieces of anatomy. That's where the demand uh, has been. You know, I mean, it it started out with war injuries way, way back, Um, but the very early on, one of the the first, uh, you know, the, the, I think one of the first cosmetic surgeons who started, I think, doing, you know, rebuilding noses, et cetera. I think one of those um, was a, was the very first transgender surgery. Okay. Hmm.
1: Uh You spend a lot of time with dr. Richard J. J. Reddit at uh, John Hopkins discussing the continued efforts to uh, conduct the first successful penis transplant in the United States um do you know where are we currently in that process?
3: Yeah, right now, as of well as of last week, I checked in with him, and there's a recipient that's been identified who uh, and they're trying to find a suitable match hmm because it's uh it's a you know in addition to all the other things that you look for with an organ with a you know organ transplant, in this case, there's skin color and I mean that's the case it's similar to a you know like a hand transplant right or a face transplant, but anyway they're they are they're trying to identify uh a donor, and I'm not sure how much of it is how much of it is is also the discomfort that the family might have that I don't know hmm. I don't know why things are uh why it's why it's been slow to to
1: happen? Because as you as you point out in the book, um, the first procedure of this sort uh, took place in Guangzhou, China, back in two thousand six, uh, and yes, and of course that uh, as you point out, that did not exactly uh, that was not a successful um, surgery in the in the long run. The these, this early attempt at it, though, does that? Do you think that speaks to anything uh, culturally about a more you know a more openness to engage with the the sexual questions involved here, or is it just uh, uh, you know more eagerness to uh, to carry out the endeavor?
3: I think probably more the latter. I think probably um, more eagerness to plunge ahead and be the first, mm-hmm. and you know the, in this case it was. Uh, they claimed it was a psychological issue. I mean, two weeks later, they removed it huh. uh, after having transplanted it. They, they removed it and they cited a se- severe psychological problem, but they didn't elaborate at all. And I wasn't able to get in touch with. They didn't respond to emails, so I don't know. I don't know exactly. There was some necrosis. Uh, okay. There was some, and you know, the, the, the uh, and and they didn't attach all of the um, same. I don't believe that the. the Cavernosal artery. There's a, there's a, a, an artery that the U.S. surgeons are planning to hook up. That I believe that they didn't. So there were, there was in, China, in the China operation. But a lot of it is speculation because there hasn't been a lot of open communication between the Chinese surgeons and the and the U.S. I mean, I, I wasn't able to get a lot of details about that procedure. Only that what is in the paper, which is that the um, there was some psychological distress and it was removed and it looked like. The U.S. surgeons told me that from looking at the photographs, it looked like there was some necrosis, some tissue that was not being receiving blood and getting oxygenated, and that that um, may have contributed as well. But you're asking why did they go ahead so quickly, and I think that just may be a yeah desire to go ahead, give it a whirl, and be you know a little less, perhaps a little less cautious and and Mm -hmm. a little less inclined to work out all the details. I don't know. I'm not sure.
4: Well, I hesitate to call this a lighter note, but (laughs) Robert and I were both very interested in uh, how erectile tissue can be constructed from the sinuses and also from mouth tissue. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Like why is it so good for reconstructive penile surgery?
3: Uh, The cheek, yeah, but for rebuilding a urethra or part of a urethra, and this is of course a tube that is transporting liquid um the the inside of the cheek is good because it's it's used to moisture it doesn't doesn't deteriorate in moisture it doesn't break down uh it's 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 evolved to be wet all the time and and if you just use skin uh you can end up with um infection and fistulas which is when infection kind of eats through uh to the outside and you have sort of a tube going off where you don't want it to mm-hmm. the other thing uh um, you want you want a, a patch of tissue that for the the penis or the urethra you, you don't want hair growing on it for the urethra you don't want hair because there's minerals in urine which can collect on and build up on the strands of hair and that can cause problems you get little calcis little stones basically Uh, so the cheek is advantageous in two ways. It's, uh, it's used to moisture and it's hairless, you know, um, for rebuilding a penis, they tend to use, you know, the underside of the arm doesn't have hair. Also the the, behind the ear is another, that little strip there that is a a little hairless stretch. Um, and in that case, just be, you don't want hair growing on your penis probably. Right. (laughs) I mean, I can't I can't speak. You would to assume, that yeah. As well as you can. <laughs> yeah. Uh so anyway, that's that's why those particular um patches of uh tissue are selected, yeah.
1: In in reading you some of your past books, I've often found this pattern where um there'll be like a, a section of one book and then uh in retrospect you can see, I sort of look back and see like oh, well that's maybe where she got the idea for the following book. Um so I, so I have yeah. to ask, when did you decide that Grunt was your next book? And if we look back into previous books, is, it, is there a particular chapter in a previous book that uh, that basically uh, you know, gave birth to this volume?
3: No, you'd have to look into the pages of Smithsonian Magazine, and you even then would never be able to tell <laughs> because it was a story that had to do with the world's hottest chili peppers, <laughs> which are grown in Naga land in India. Uh, and while I was reporting that piece, somebody told me that the Indian defense ministry had basically weaponized this chili pepper and made a kind of tear gas or mace with this uh sort of a nature's own tear gas so i felt like i needed to report on that i went over to the neighboring state of assam india and we went to this lab and while i was there i just there were a number of projects going on that struck me as kind of fascinating and Esoteric. There was a leech repellent project going on, and and I remember that was the moment where I thought, oh, military science. There's this whole world out there of uh, things that uh, are, have nothing to do with building better weapons. There's just there's it's a whole world of the kind of stuff I like to report on. There's a lot of um, biology and um, human related science that goes on, uh, you know, in the name of keeping people alive, which is. I also liked that it was this kind of counterintuitive for a military book it's not really uh, about you know, so much of what you see is about the technology of weaponry and bombs and high-tech lasers and drones etc so that the human side of it seemed uh, it just seemed to fit in it uh, but anyway it didn't grow out of anything in any of the earlier books it was from a, a story I was doing in between books
4: yeah, that's interesting for us because we just, maybe a month or two ago, did an episode on the history of the weaponization of animals for military purposes. Uh So it was really nice to yeah. see in your book, like, the flip side to it, where it was more of the, like, healing function that all this, you know, DOD yeah. research goes towards.
3: So how did you cover the, the – I saw something about about owls. Did you cover that one where the Coast Guard wanted to use owls to no. Oh, no. look for uh, – uh, yeah, that was anyway, but that's not weaponization. That was more like um, almost more like a cadaver rescue dog. It was feeding okay, okay. owls. To,
1: well, we've talked to, about going back like, and anyway. doing a, a second episode yeah. where we talk about the use of animals and more like spying, uh, surveillance, uh, you know, other um, other uh, uses aside yeah. from just killing people.
4: I think the craziest one we got right. into was the bat bomb. Did you oh, ever yes. hear about that during World that's, War II? Yeah,
3: I did, yes. Yeah. I almost put it in the book, but I but I had to you know remind myself it a little off topic for me. Yeah, yes, the yeah. bat bombs were amazing. It, yeah, it's totally <laughs> insane.
1: So how does science and sort of generally speaking and you know in your experience, how does science that orbits military endeavors, uh you know not necessarily the weaponized stuff, but the stuff you cover in this book, how does that how does it differ from other areas of science and scientific uh, research and inquiry?
3: Um it's well, it's an interesting mix because there there there's a whole world of uh, of um, science that gets funded through DARPA, which is very um, it's with an eye to the future. And then, like for example, there'd be um, and I didn't I didn't do, cover a lot of DARPA stuff, but I was fascinated by it because it was um, it, it it'd be some idea of like you know, well, how can we what's a, what's a way to make you know, soldiers, you know, more effective and better at what they do. Wouldn't it be great if there were a way where they could not be sleep deprived so they could be, they could sleep but have what kind of one eye open, like be partially looking out for things, mm-hmm. um, and, but still sleep and not get sleep deprived. And, and so they were looking at, uh, animals, uh, marine mammals and also some birds that have, um, one that are awake and would, in one hemisphere and asleep in the other. Like there are there are geese and ducks that can, you know, they'll sleep in a group, and the ones on the perimeter will sleep, but also be watching out for predators. And so there's there's some um biologists or zoologists who've gotten funded by DARPA to just to, to study unihemispheric sleep. So mm-hmm. and you'll you'll look at this paper and you'll think, why is DARPA funding? Like, oh, okay, right. like they're looking forward to the future. Like, how can we make this kind of invincible, modulated soldier. Like, what, what could we do to this soldier to make him or her more efficient, more awake, uh, less of a human and more of a fighting machine? So there's that very strange world, which I didn't spend much time in. I just sort of would come across the papers and go, whoa, really? <laughs> Surgically installed gills? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so that's that sort of futuristic, surreal stuff. And then there's, um, there's just a, a tremendous amount of, um, work that kind of goes on under the radar. That's just, you know, like the, the Naval Submarine Medical Research Lab, which is just, you know, looking at sleep deprivation and, you know, air levels and, and, and the, you know, the various things that people deal with when they're, um, out on a submarine and, um, how to sort of make that existence better, more efficient, healthier, et cetera. So, that, but there's like that work goes on and has gone on and just is not, it's kind of um, invisible. I mean, it's not, it, it just doesn't get a lot of attention and it's, you know, it's, it. it's heartening to me to see that that's there and that the, the people that are doing it are very committed and dedicated and caring, you know, the reasons, ultimate reason, some of this work is being done, you know, uh, when you get right down to it, it's like how to make soldiers better at what they do and keep them alive so they can keep being soldiers, which is less sort of heartwarming, Mm -hmm. but you take it down to the level of the actual scientists and they're really caring people who are very dedicated to the lives of men and women who are serving in the military. And that's so, so it was, um, Anyway,
1: I, it, I don't know if that answered your question. No, no, that's uh, that's exactly uh, yeah, what I was wondering. Just sort of the uh, yeah, the different you know what what the energy of the the research is like as opposed to like non military research. Uh, so yes, I, I think that's, that that answers the question perfectly. I can only imagine you're getting a lot of interview questions about the Eurotrauma and the penile transplant um, sections of the book as, as as we ask you and and I. And again, I want to stress that I thought you handled it just perfectly with, uh, you know, utilizing the, the expected Mary Roach voice, but also, you know, handling some (laughs) potentially delicate, uh, subject matter. Uh, but can you tell our, our listeners and and readers about something that you explored in the book that's getting less coverage that maybe you wish more interviewers were, were asking you about?
3: Well, I'm actually, you know, the book, since I'm talking, I'm talking to you a month before the book is out. So, you are really among the first oh, okay. uh, folks that I've spoken to. I've done, um, I've done some Q and A's, and to be honest, this is the first time where I've talked in much detail about it. P- partly because there just haven't been many interviews yet, um, but um, and it'll be interesting to see whether this is something people focus on or whether they'd rather leave it alone because it is, you know, it is sensitive and it's. Um, there's a level of discomfort with the conversation and with, I guess, um, uh, how listeners, readers, whatever will react to it. And, uh, so I, I think, it, I, I don't know, um, whether that will be discussed. I would think it would be discussed a lot, but, uh, we'll see. Um,
1: it's hard to imagine it coming up on the talk shows, the- I guess, uh, like the late night talk shows.
3: Yeah. Depending on who the,
1: who the <laughs> host
3: is, <laughs> um, yeah, well, or or I was thinking more like you know CBS Sunday Morning or you know the morning <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah the morning mainstream TV you know uh, while people are having their breakfast
4: yeah we really gravitated little, toward that it, section it just it, I I, th- I think it felt like it fit the voice of the show the the whole book did but this in particular we were like that is something we can make a whole episode around
3: oh yeah I agree I mean I think I mean there's two chapters in the the book and I had originally planned one and. Um, then I heard about the tr- the transplant that the the, um, the folks at Johns Hopkins were working towards, and, and, and then I obviously wanted to cover that. I mean, that, partly because I'm Mary Roach, and that's the kind of thing I covered, but also just how could it? How could I not want to cover that? It's not, it's just really interesting because it's it's it, it's uh, terra incognito for uh, for the transplant. Well you know the face face first face transplant was tremendously compelling to people that mm-hmm. it's you know it, it, we've we've left behind the world of you know organs are they're hidden you don't really look at somebody and you think, okay they've got a new liver that's great but that doesn't yeah. have the same there's not a psychological component that's as kind of immediately fascinating.
4: Yeah, I feel uh, like a lot of this research yeah. too just like strays right alongside like some borderline science fiction pop culture stuff too, you know, like when we're talking about these sleep experiments, thinking about, uh, R- Robert and I have done episodes in the past about, uh, like people speculating about all these myths about uh, theoretical Russian military s- sleep experiments, you know, and then like, of course, you know, you just mentioned the face transplant thing. And it brings to mind that, what's that '90s movie Face Off, where they oh, yes. they swap faces, yeah, yeah. you know. And it's it's this is yeah, stuff exactly. that people have kind like of Nicholas
3: been. Yeah, Nicholas Cage, right?
4: Yeah, and people have been thinking about it in sort of silly terms for a while, but this has some very serious real world uh, applications.
3: Yeah, and the the fact that the immunosuppressive regimens have have made tremendous strides, and so now you can. Do something like face transplant, which before, because it wasn't, because it wasn't a matter of life and death, people sort of shied away from it because the burden of the drugs that you take to suppress the immune system so it doesn't reject the, the tissue, um, that, th- that seemed, you know, it was questionably ethical. Do you put somebody, you know, should you put someone through the risks and inconveniences and problems of this very heavy immunosuppressive regimen just for a face, when so it's not a matter of life and death. And now that they, have you know, with marrow infusion and other advances in immunosuppression, now it's, it's, that's kind of falling away and it's, um, they're, they're transplanting whole arms, they're transplanting faces and, you know, now penises and probably at some point legs, although legs are problematic for various reasons, uh, and be, and because, um, they're, making, they're also at the same time making great strides with prosthetics. prosthetics yeah, you know, with prosthetic, Yeah. So um, you definitely want to – a leg transplant is not going to be the best option for a very long time, I think. So, But then, yeah, this is the guy in Italy who's talking about a whole body transplant or what is mm-hmm. sort of commonly talked about in the press as a head transplant, but really – the head is the person, the transplantation is the whole body of the brain dead person. So, and there's some guy in Italy, I don't know how much of that is bluster and how much of that is real, but he's talking about, oh yeah, I've got a patient and I'm ready to go. Yeah. Uh, which you know, I can't even imagine because that's, um, there's so many unknowns with that and, and so many potential problems. I don't know. And I haven't spoken to him, but anyway, this whole Frankenstein science fiction realm is rapidly coming to be not science fiction and
1: it's it's, it's fascinating now in, in all of your books I've uh, I always enjoy the footnotes so much because there's always there are always these little uh, little nuggets of, uh, of fascination that kind of spring off <laughs> from the main uh, material and, and in this one uh, there were several great ones but the the 1885 rabbit eye transplant by uh, one dr. H Bradford <laughs> that one really floored me uh, were you able to, to learn much about this?
3: It was in the paper you know, i couldn't interview him he's long gone but um that was so like there were so many things that fascinated me about that first of all the fact that rabbit eyes are very similar to human eyes if mm-hmm. you go on the internet you can sort of verify this and i don't really recommend that because when you do the search this weird thing comes up about a guy who is selling a box of rabbit heads um <laughs> Anyway, for purposes, I don't know why, uh, but they seem like it was a, he was offering a pretty good deal on those rabbit oh, yeah. heads. But, yeah, well, like, <laughs> they don't um, come cheap, those rabbit heads. Yeah, they, <laughs> no. <laughs> and I was like, well, is somebody transplanting eyeballs? Why would you want these rabbit heads? What are you doing with them? But, and he was like, make me an offer. But anyway, see, this is what happens when I go off on these tangents. But the, um, yeah, but there was some, it was some guy who he was he was a sailor, I think or he was anyway he worked on ships and he um for some reason that was their saying well for that reason we you know a glass eye won't work, I guess it was an occupational issue, so mm-hmm. they wanted to do something that wouldn't break when you were hitting your in the face or something huh. and then I thought, well, yeah pirates have Eye patches, so maybe there's a <laughs> there is a high level of ocular injury on ships. I don't know why. Huh. Anyway, that was what the reason they gave for why they were going to do this. Um, and of course, I should point out to listeners um, the eye. This just it was cosmetic. It wasn't going to be hooked up, and you would be able to see, the person couldn't see because there's never been a successful eye transplant because hooking up the eye it's a much more complicated. It's instead of like hooking up a telephone cable. You know, I'm talking about the nerves here. You're hooking mm-hmm. up, you know, a complicated computer system, and the body doesn't know how to regrow and reattach and make it all work again. So the there hasn't been an eye transplant other than this cosmetic. 18, what was it, 19, early 1900s? I don't have the date handy. But uh, i think 1885. It yeah, I think
1: 1885 was what I. Yeah,
3: knew. yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So other than the the guy who tried to do it for transparent reasons, yeah, there hasn't. Uh, there's, there's not any – uh, nobody else is transplanting eyes, rabbit or <laughs>
4: – <you laughs> Or otherwise.
3: <laughs> or otherwise.
1: All right. Well, uh, you know, those were our, our main questions for you here today. Uh, again, uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to chat with us. Uh, greatly enjoyed the book, and we uh, certainly encourage all of our listeners to go and pick it up. Um, When this episode comes out, it should be available in all the uh, physical and digital um, ways that uh, one normally acquires a, a good book.
3: Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on this program.
1: Thanks once again to Mary Roach. Uh, again, the book is uh, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Thanks to Mary for coming on the show and chatting with us. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Christian and I are going to discuss the topic further. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, we've had myths and legends of penis loss and probably replacement as well, that go back pretty far. It's the sort of thing that's likely lost in the midst of history. I mean, the myths of, uh, are full of uh, castration and um, uh, penectomy accounts uh, with a with a primordial uh, castration of the god uh, uranus being one of the big ones uh, and i've uh, i've, I've uh, read various uh, european tales that have involved witches s- stealing men's penises mm-hmm. sometimes hiding them away in trees and then uh Sometimes the men are able to steal the penises back and they are somehow magically reattached to the body. So
4: And this is probably like uh, a legend that is deeply seated in psychological fears oh, yeah. of uh you know it, as we're gonna talk about that there's like a real deep psychological cultural connection to your genitals. Yeah. Uh, of course. But um yeah, something like that seems like you know, it's sort of pre Lorena Bobbitt style, like, fear of the woman stealing, uh, manliness. Yeah, and even then, there
1: has, there's like a sense of humor and uneasiness, unwillingness to, like, confront the, the horror and terror of it, and therefore wrapping it then in the, uh, in, in, in something a little more whimsical. Mm, mm-hmm. And then as far as just simply, as far as just simply reattaching a penis that has been uh, um cut from the body uh penis reattachment surgery has been around for a little while um in fact uh, Dr surasak mungsambat of uh, Thailand actually became something of an expert in it uh during the 90s d- due to an upswing in such attacks on philandering men um, by their wives mm. Um and uh transplanting uh you know one's own member back is challenging enough, especially if said member has been fed to a duck, Wow, which was apparently the
4: the practice uh at the time. Hmm. But- I wonder why, in particular, a duck. As uh rather than any other animal, that's hmm. something we should look into. That would I would be yeah curious to see what the sort of uh,
1: cultural implications of that, or yeah. is it just
4: that ducks are around? Maybe and, they're just plentiful. Yeah. Well, if you out there know, uh, let let us know about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe
4: it's a worse fate than a fish. I'm, I'm not. Who sure. knows? Yeah.
1: But certainly, it's one thing to it's complicated enough involving microsurgery. Yeah. To to uh, to put one a penis back onto an individual, but then to transplant another's member. That's a more complicated scenario.
4: So before we get into the like real nitty gritty specifics about how these penile transplants work, I think it's worth doing just like a brief overview of organ transplantation in general. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the same stuff applies here. So, uh, to start with, researchers originally had success uh, in the early 20th century with transplanting organs in animals, but not in humans. And they, they, they were basically, they had a lot of failures. They could not make it work uh, until the 1950s when the first kidney transplant started to work out. And this is important because it was saving lives. In these instances, these are organs that people need to live, right? Kidneys, hearts. Uh, and so they need these transplants. And oftentimes, even today, still don't get them because of the uh, availability. And that's something that we're going to talk about as well. But um, genitals were kind of off the table. Nobody had been able to pull that one off. Uh, and the problem here is that the demand for organs with all of the diseases that are affecting us as human beings way outweighs the supply of the actual organs. There's just not enough. Right? Um, donors can wait for years. Sometimes they die while they're waiting. Uh, and we're talking about thousands of people here. This isn't penile transplants, but just organ transplants in general. Uh, and even though here in the U.S., people in general favor organ donation, right? Like if you walk up to most people on the street and ask them, I'm sure they would say, yeah, sure, I would, you know, after I pass away, give my organs to science <laughs> or something like that, right? Uh, or, or to somebody who needs them. But actually, only a small percentage of people do this. They actually go through the procedure of filling out the paperwork for it. Uh, and this is how serious it is. 16 potential recipients die every single day from something that's totally curable if they had transplants. Uh, oh, wow. And then we're also obviously looking into artificial organs. You're hearing a lot about this lately, not just in bioengineering, but then also with like the advent of 3D printing, what people can do with that.
1: Right. The, the creation of the necessary scaffolding and then the growing of tissue over that to create a suitable replacement organ.
4: Yeah. So uh, in the cases of organs that are super sensitive, like your heart, your lungs and other sensitive organs, transplantation is actually like the last resort. Like that's the last thing that they want to. But here's the process of how this works. And it's essentially the same for penile transplants. Uh, a patient finds a willing donor. Uh, usually it's a friend or a family member uh, but what they're looking for is a match somebody that can go directly into surgery uh, and a small number of these transplants come from general donors of course people who who you know have filled out their organ donor cards or whatnot uh, but many of these have to come from dead donors and oftentimes we're actually talking about brain dead donors not physically dead donors that's
1: kind of the i guess the ideal if you want to say a situation yeah. because the body is preserved with life but there is no more
4: uh, mental capacity in the creature exactly and it's incredibly complex going through the process of getting permission to get an organ from somebody who's technically still alive but who's uh brain dead legally right so it's so complex. In fact, like we don't have time to go into it on this episode and also, uh, uh, you know, give you the interview that we did with Mary. But if you really want to know more about it, I recommend going and checking out the article that's at HowStuffWorks.com about uh, organ transplants in general. There's some good information there. The actual transplantation itself involves a huge team of surgeons uh, obviously there's a hospital involved and they all have to assess the patient's attitude, their psychological condition, and especially their history with drugs, cigarette and alcohol use, um, because that can complicate things as well. Compatibility in particular requires everything from your physical tissues and blood samples being able to match to how long the recipient has actually been waiting for this. Right? So when it's a go, you move quickly. Uh, you really hurry the patient into surgery, and then a whole nother team goes and gets the organ from the donor. Now, here's a, a disturbing little tidbit note that you can stash away overseas organs often come from executed prisoners, uh, most notably in China. Hmm. And there's an indication that because there are people paying for these organs, it's actually accelerated the execution schedules in these countries in order to meet demand. So that's pretty disturbing. Post operation, Recovery usually involves a lot of medication and a lot of follow-up hospital visits to make sure that everything's healed correctly. This is going to pretty much last for the rest of your life. Um, And the reason why is because your immune system is going to see this new organ as foreign cells, and it's going to try to attack it. So to minimize this, uh, like I said before, you try to match the blood and tissue types, but also the body's just naturally going to reject it unless you have like an identical twin hanging around and they're willing to give up their organs to you. So there's three kinds of rejection. Uh, there's hyperacute rejection, and this is when, like, the blood type just doesn't match up at all. The antibodies react, and really, like, this is a worst-case scenario because the recipient is going to die on the operating table. Acute reaction, uh, or rejection, rather, is what we see most often. And this is when you have a normal immune response. It starts a few days after the transplant, uh, and basically our immune system... Uh, it needs to be suppressed by medications so that we can go ahead with the transplant. The unfortunate side effect is it makes us susceptible to infection and disease, right? So sometimes they're trying out this new thing where they sometimes also take bone marrow transplants to produce white blood cells inside the, the recipient's body, hoping that their immune system will sort of be tricked into recognizing the new organ. The last kind of uh, of rejection is a chronic rejection, and this is a gradual thing that that lasts over the course of months or years. Y- you may not find out until many years after the transplant that the, the you know that it didn't actually hold. Uh, and one note that I'd like to point out here too is that these immunosuppressive drugs that we give the patients they also have adverse effects over long term, uh, including cancer and kidney damage. So. In some situations, the benefits may not uh, outweigh the risks involved here. So uh, let's get to penises, shall we? Uh, until recently, and like I'm talking like 10 years recently, uh, the only treatment for men uh, was to construct a penis from the flesh of their thigh or forearm skin. And, so basic plastic surgery reconstruction. Yeah, and so you take that skin, you add a penile prosthetic, and it's got malleable or inflatable rods in it that make it semi-rigid. Then you add a saline pump to this that fills it up, right, like acting like the um, the blood filling up uh, the, the tissue of a penis. And this has been around since the 70s, this practice. Uh, this is a direct quote from one of the articles that we researched for this it about this procedure. It said, the aesthetics were crude and the penetration is awkward. So now, this is, that can be said about most people's first... That first experience is sexual. Humor. That's true too. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, See, we do have a sense
1: of humor. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and in, I think it's also worth noting that it, it's it's look at imagining this scenario here, and certainly you can look up uh, images and uh, more you know technical documents on all this. It's easy to say, well, that sounds crude, and certainly that's no re- that, that's no replacement for the tissue situation. But that is still pretty remarkable yeah. that, we, that we were able to accomplish this. This is a still quite totally. a surgical
4: feat. Yeah. I, um, it gets it back to what we were talking about uh, in our cyborgs episode, mm-hmm. like the things that we're able to accomplish, yeah, like, yeah. what makes us human, what makes us the machine, the cyborg nature of humanity. Yeah.
1: So I don't want to slight uh, no. that
4: procedure at no. all, because that is an amazing feat. Uh, And then here's the other thing that made uh, any kind of penile transplants really difficult and still does. Uh, So I talked earlier about how just getting organs in general is difficult, right? right? Getting a penis donor is even more difficult. The organ banks that accept other internal organs, they don't even have like a a, a field on their form for penises, right? Right. Uh, and so they don't usually request these. It has to be done separately. Uh, in fact, in South Africa, families often flat out refuse. And this is going to be important because the first penile transplant was in South Africa. Uh, but there's such an emotional cultural gravity to a request like that that most people just say no. I will not give you, you know, my my dead family members' penis. Uh, and in in the case of the people who did the first penile transplant in South Africa, they actually had to come up with a way to work around it where they started constructing faux penises for the dead uh, from the donor's skin to preserve their dignity uh, in their graves and subsequently still be able to use the penis and give it to a living recipient. Huh.
1: Wow. That is, that is, that is crazy. You know, in, um, in Grunt, uh, Mary Roach's book, she points yeah. out that the cadavers that were being used in some of the, not even actual transplant procedures, but essentially rehearsals, mm-hmm. uh, for a, a, an upcoming transplant procedure. Like those are situations where somebody's body was donated to science and they're, you know, they're not about to, you know, necessarily share the exact details of how that body was used. Yeah, totally. You know, in part because of the complexities of our, our psychological um attachments
4: to oh, these yeah. various parts. Yeah. Who wants to know about like how their loved one was carved up and maybe mistakes were made on them or whatever. But the benefit is, is that it led to the successes that we're going to talk about next yes. and some of the failures.
1: So, Let's go back to um a case that Mary Roach discussed in the interview. This was a uh, two thousand six Guangzhou General Hospital in Guangzhou, China. You had a forty four year old man who had lost his penis in a quote an unfortunate traumatic accident. That's about all we know mm-hmm. One of the is is we've already touched on in the interview this case there's there's some material that is that is not as directly related to the reader there's maybe some of that might be lost in translation. Some of it is
4: just maybe not provided. Um, yeah, there are a lot of things about this particular case, and it's been 10 years that are still vague to this day. And, and it, when we talked to Mary, we sort of mentioned that, yeah. right? Like, I remember saying to her, you know, what What was actually up with that? And she said as far as she could tell, uh, it was necrosis. But we'll get there.
1: So the lead surgeon on this one was one Dr. Hu
0: Wei Li. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential?
4: And so from what we know, the parents of a brain dead man in his twenties agreed to donate their son's penis to this man who was damaged in this unfortunate traumatic accident. Now the way that they did it in this Chinese procedure was they warmed up the donor's penis with an infrared lamp post-operation. And this was supposed to increase the metabolic requirements of the organ instead of increasing the blood supply. Now, other doctors that have been uh, interviewed about this particular procedure, they have said things along the lines of they think that what happened here and why it didn't work out was there was inadequate psychological workup. So like with a lot of the procedures that we talk about on this show that are semi-experimental, like, say, uh using MDMA to help with PTSD, right? Right. It requires therapy as well. It's psychological and physical. And yeah, it's not like
1: just you're not doing body work in a car
4: here. So yeah, exactly. Um, now, in the particular case uh, for the, the biological surgery here with this Chinese case, they, they could only use the local nerve structures because the donor's blood vessels had actually been obliterated. Uh, And they rerouted a blood vessel from his lower abdomen to his perineum to connect it to this new penis. Then they connected the blood vessels and dorsal nerves and then the the urethra for urination and the corpus cavernosum for uh, erections. Now, according to the Guardian, they thought, okay, everything was a success. After about 10 days, he had a rich blood supply and could urinate normally. But then the recipient and his wife came back in two weeks after the surgery and requested that it be removed. And as we talked about with Mary, nobody really knows the answer here, but we think that it's likely due to psychological issues surrounding the necrosis of the tissue involved.
1: Yeah, and of course you can't help but wonder, like, to what extent was this, how much of this was... A failed reattachment surgery, right? Uh, and then, to to what extent is it more psychological? Like, is it is the is the version that everyone gets? Is it leaning one way or another? Did they decide to lean away from from blaming the science?
4: Yeah, you I know, mean, what kind of how was it portrayed in the media? Yeah, and exactly. like you said earlier, how much is lost in translation when we bring it over to English speaking media? So there's a lot of confusion around this case, but from what we know. Uh, it, it was considered a quote failure because the man asked it to be removed. Right, and we shouldn't discount the, the psychological uh, issues at Absolutely. all because
1: uh, psychological issues involving transplants are not unheard of. The world's first hand transplant recipient, uh, a New Zealander by the name of Clint Hallam, he he stopped taking his immune suppression drugs, uh, you know, by choice, and then later requested that the hand be amputated. So, and and this is often brought up as an example of well, they they essentially. Uh, they essentially uh, tackle the problem like yeah. uh, like like auto work. And they didn't they didn't take into account that, you
4: yes, you have to have all of this additional psychological support as well. Yeah, this is incredibly gruesome stuff when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, too. Like this is the kind of stuff that would make up like a Tales from the Crypt style story or something like that. Like mm-hmm. like he has a dead man's hand and uh you, you know what i mean like it lends itself very well to,
1: to to paranoid thinking yeah. and to doubt and and i can't help but wonder too like in in these, especially these earlier cases to what extent was the were they straight like 100% straight with expectations yeah for the right. recipient They're like hey this is this, this you aren't going to be 100% new. This is not going to be a, you know, a, a, a one, two, three, fix it scenario.
4: Right. It's not like you. And as we'll talk about, you don't just walk out of there and you've got a fully functioning penis. It right. takes like weeks to months to years to try to get everything working properly. And in fact, in the South African case, they were surprised at how quickly things became functional. Well, let's look at that uh, the South
1: African case. This yeah. is uh, 2015. And we're uh, taking. This is taking place at the Tigerberg Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa. A 21-year-old penile amputee who lost his penis in a botched circumcision. And this is apparently pretty common. Dozens, some say hundreds, of boys are maimed or die each year during traditional initiation ceremonies. So these are not. Yeah. These are not infant uh, circumcisions.
4: These are coming of age circumcisions. Yeah, he was 18 when this happened, uh, and these ritual circumcisions are. Uh, Basically, the way that it goes is is they're so tightly wrapped that it causes necrosis in the penis, Mm -hmm. but, you know, without it even being detached. Uh, So his penis had to be amputated. Uh, This is particularly common in South Africa's, I believe this is Zosa speaking region. It's X-H-O-S-A. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, but let's say it's Zosa uh, speaking region of the Eastern Cape. Uh, and it so it's a rite of passage for young men. They actually attend circumcision school and they're instructed in family values and sexual education there. Uh, there's also high prices that are charged for this procedure. So basically, they take the penis, they wrap it at its base to stem the flow of blood up to the foreskin, right? Some men actually die because they won't go to a hospital because they're, they're afraid of being ostracized after revealing that their gangrenous penis has fallen off. So oh. there's such a strong psychological cultural connection to this thing that it's leading to people dying. Uh, so, yeah, so South Africa seems like an ideal place to, to start uh, getting a prep team ready to go for the first penile transplant. Uh, and the uh, lead surgeon here was one Professor Andre van der Merwe. So when the recipient recovered, he actually had to come back in uh, and drain a hematoma and repair a small fistula in the urethra. And now here's the thing. They expected that it was going to take two years for it to be fully functional. It only took three and a half months. Uh, and the surgery itself, it took four years of clinical and ethical therapeutic preparation. Mm-hmm. They had to work with cadavers in practice, as we talked about earlier. It was really difficult to find penile donors, as we talked about earlier. They were trying to overcome this by doing the whole procedure that I talked about, where they build these fake penises. So this team is not only trying to come up with a way to help these uh, these victims of this uh, botched ritual circumcision, but then they also have to come up with a way to somehow please the families of the donors. Uh, and as of uh, the, the last time this was reported, the hospital had nine more candidates in wait. But the good news is, the recipient, the patient, last June, it was reported that his girlfriend was pregnant. Oh, wow. So, fully functioning
1: penis, apparently. The same, yeah. I wonder if this case, if it also helped that the recipient was so young, just by virtue
4: of right. you know, the, the, the cause of the accident. Whereas in the uh, recent case, the American case, he, he was he was far, not, not he's not old, but he was older than this guy. He's 64 years old. Right.
1: Alright, so let's get to this most recent case.
4: Uh, when we're looking
1: at May 8th through 8th and the 9th, 2016. Mm-hmm. Weeks uh, ago. Yeah, just weeks ago. It took place at Massachusetts, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Thomas Manning, a 64-year-old bank courier from Halifax, uh, Massachusetts, penis was removed because of cancer.
4: Now, uh, this is, you know, most recent and, uh, the New York Times and then also the Atlantic did really great uh, write-ups on this. So a lot of our information from, is from here. Man, I wish we could get Mary on the phone again and talk about this. I'm sure yeah. she was pretty interested in it as well. Uh, it took 30 healthcare workers in total to perform this operation. There were three years of preparation. Again, all the practicing on cadavers. Now, Manning only found out about the fact that he had this rare cancer after he had an accident at work. When he went into the doctor, they said, whoa, there's this, this, you know, abnormal growth on your penis. And they realized that it was it was so cancerous that it had to be uh, amputated. Now, it only took him two weeks, though, to find a donor who matched his blood and tissue type. So that works out pretty well. Yeah. Now, the surgery here in the U.S. is estimated to cost somewhere between 50000 and $75,000. But the hospitals involved are paying for the procedures while the doctors are donating their time. So everything, as far as we know with this... Is so far, so good, right? Uh, in their official statement, they said that the penis has regular blood flow, no signs of infection or rejection. They hope that in a few weeks, he'll achieve normal urination. So probably around right now, I would imagine. They say they already have another patient waiting. This guy, uh, his penis was destroyed by burns in a car accident. Mm. Ultimately, their goal is to help combat veterans like we talked about with Mary and uh, other cancer patients and accident victims they're in fact hoping to train their techniques to military surgeons because this is like we talked about with Mary so common with IED victims
1: yes I mean all this is very much taking on the the, the front lines of the uh, of, of the surgical frontier um, that's why doctors are donating their times that's why hospitals are are, uh, are, are are paying the bills here and then uh, then hopefully as these uh, techniques are are um, are perfected, yeah, they will be passed down, uh,
4: and and others can start utilizing these techniques around the world. Now, there's one thing that I want to add to this. We talked a little bit about it with Mary. Uh, In the press release about uh, this U.S. penile transplant, they specifically said this will not be offered to transgender people for now. Now, I want to just touch on this a little bit, because... Uh, As we were reading Mary's book, Mm -hmm. obviously it was apparent that um, the science behind uh, gender reassignment surgery has been used as sort of like a, a building block to get to where we are with these penile transplants. Yeah. Uh, when I was uh, 21, I read uh, Kate Bornstein's Gender Outlaw, and it, it specifically describes the female-to-male ma- gender reassignment surgery. And I immediately thought, when we were doing this research, well, it's it's clear that you know there's a foundation there, uh, and it seems to be the secret that. No one's really talking about, I mean clearly in China and South Africa, uh, and then in this most recent US case, it's, it's, it's not in the public press releases, right? But I, I think that it's fair to say that these medical teams uh did get some help at least or some some foundational work from the efforts that were done there.
1: Yeah, yeah, because the field of gender reassignment surgery definitely had an impact on on our ability to treat Eurotrauma, uh, uh wounds to the general area. And of course all of this ends up playing directly into our ability to to graft a donor penis onto a recipient. Yeah. But I do agree with you. It seems weird that uh that these contributions have not been highlighted more. Um, and there's a and just continued unwillingness, perhaps, to discuss. um Sure. Who, sh- who should be, who should be uh open? Uh, who should be able to receive these uh, procedures?
4: Yeah. And given the controversy right now, especially like it's a hot button issue yeah. with uh, transgender rights and bathrooms in North Carolina, you know, they these hospitals, they want to retain their funding. I get it. Like, yeah, it's a it's a PR move. But I think. You know, for us covering this, it's only fair to be honest and say, you know, it seems like, uh, there was some foundational work there. Now, there's also another topic that we don't have time for today, but maybe we'll be able to come back to in the future, which is the fact that there are actually artificially grown genitals that are being used and prepared for potential transplantation. Both penises and vaginas, the vagina's actually successful. Uh, and have have been so for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really have time to dive into the science on that today. So if this is you know something that's interesting to you listeners, uh, and you want to hear more about it, uh, let us know. And Robert and I can come back and maybe we'll do something on artificially grown organs yeah, and transplant genitals. Who mm-hmm. doesn't want to
1: hear an episode on that? Yeah. Also, um, we're going to be talking futuristically. So I feel like maybe that we'll be able to actually work in a little more humor mm-hmm. as we distance it from some of the, you know, the, the real life and often grim circumstances
4: that require these procedures to begin with. Yeah. Especially, man, let me tell you what they do to rabbits for this <laughs> next time. Next time. Next time on stuff to blow your
1: mind. The things they do to rabbits. Yep. All right. Well, hey, in the meantime, check out the landing page for this episode on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find links out to some of the articles we mentioned here, links out to Mary's book. And uh, you'll also find all the podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts, uh, links to our social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. We are blow the mind on both of those. We're also on Tumblr. We're also on Instagram.
4: Yeah, and if you want to write us directly and tell us what you know about penile transplants or artificially grown organs or whatever, write us at or at HowStuffWorks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.